And then we jumped, and they talk about combat jumps being at 500 feet. It is. It was at 500 feet, and it doesn't take long to hit the ground when you're when you're that low. And basically, you jump out, you count to 4,000, look up, check your shoot, your equipment, and then you hit the ground. Really, it's that quick. And I don't know why they gave us reserve parachutes, but I guess it was just a, a mental thing. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. George W. Waitman to WarDocs. Dr. Waitman is a board-certified family physician and as a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. General Waitman retired after 36 years of service, and while on active duty, he held many strategic and operational leadership roles, including commander of the following units, Medical Research and Material Command, Walter Reed Army Medical Center, AMED Center and School, and the 44th Medical Command at Fort Bragg. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Waitman's experience leading medical units into combat and working at the highest levels of medical strategic leadership to improve training and research in military medicine. With engaging anecdotes from his vast experience, Dr. Waitman provides thoughtful insights and lessons learned that have positively impacted military medicine. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. George Waitman to War Docs. George, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Doug. Thanks for asking. So you attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. What led you to the Army? And specifically, what led you into Army medicine? Pretty simple story, actually. I grew up in northern Vermont, very small town. And there were five people in the whole town that had ever gone to college. And my two older sisters, my parents had put through college, and I was determined that I was going to get a scholarship to go to college. And I played basketball in high school, and I thought I had a couple small scholarships to play there. But I applied to the academies. My my father was more interested in the Air Force Academy because he was a frustrated pilot. And so I got in, and that was the best deal that I had. Well, I got to West Point, and I quickly found out I was not good enough to play basketball for them. But I, I really liked the academics, and I liked the people at West Point. I got to play sports, all sports. They make you play sports three different uh, times a year. So it, it was a good fit for me. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And West Point kind of cultivates that because at that time, they had a very scripted curriculum. And you, it was heavy in math and science and engineering, but you got a major in general studies. So I didn't have to declare a major. And I liked math and science and, and engineering. So the funny thing was, when I left, it was right at the end of the Vietnam War. I graduated in 73. And as you know, you get to pick your assignment based on your class rank. Well, I was high enough in the class. So if I went engineers or MI, I wasn't really sure I could get to go to Hawaii because that's what I wanted to do. Well, if I went infantry... Nobody wanted to go to infantry in 1973. So I, I said, infantry will be fun. I get to be outdoors. I like the outdoors. And so uh, I picked infantry and I was high enough, went to Hawaii and I did the infantry thing as a lieutenant and then a captain. But I found out after about four years of doing that, I was a little frustrated because in the infantry in 1974, 75, 76, you practiced all the time to do something you never got to do. And I found that frustrating. My roommate at the time is somebody you probably know, Dr. Bill Madigan, Colonel Retired Madigan. And he got interested in medical school and got me interested in it. That appealed to me. I like caring for people. And it would give me, as opposed to infantry, what I was trained to do, I got to do every day. So I thought I'd find that fulfilling. So I applied to the University of Vermont and I got ex accepted. And so that's how I ended up at West Point, that's how I ended up at, at medical school. I liked everything I did in med school. I liked every rotation. And so, you know, that's a natural fit for family medicine. And you get to do a little bit of everything. And I had really good mentors in, in med school. So that's really the only residency I applied to and, and got accepted at Eisenhower. So did you do HBSB scholarship for medical school? I did. Yeah, I was 
pretty much done with my initial commitment to West Point, except for like six months. So I did HPSP. By that time, I was married and I had one child and then had another one in West Point. So I didn't have any school debts and I didn't want to get anymore. So between the GI Bill and HPSP, I think I was making like $1,000 a month, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but it was pretty good back then. So after the family practice residency at Eisenhower, you wound up at West Point again. Now, how was that going back to the alma mater and what unique circumstances do you encounter with the cadets and instructors and their families? I really didn't have much to do with the cadets at all because I was a family physician. There was a separate cadet health clinic. And so they put me in a Stewart Army subpost, which is a a satellite clinic about 15 miles north of West Point up by Newburgh. So I had my own family practice and everybody that lived at Stuart Emory Subpost was on my panel and I did full service family medicine. I just loved it. And I was missing contact with cadets. So we volunteered to sponsor cadets. And when I went to West Point, there were no women at West Point. But when I went back on staff, there were so we, we tried to get women to sponsor women, and we ended up with two women and two male cadets. And so that really opened my eyes up a lot about how West Point had changed and what it was like those early years for women to be at West Point. And I think it made me more empathetic for female soldiers later on in my career, too. But after two years at the satellite clinic, they brought me in, and I was in charge of all of family medicine and emergency medicine. Barry Wolcott was the commander by that time. And Greg Stevens, recently retired as the SES chief of the Civilian Corps in the AMED, was my DCA. And so he was a very good mentor. But I have to tell you about one of my patients, and I don't think I'm violating any HIPAA rules, but... One of my patients was a tactical officer at the time, and his name was Lloyd Austin. And so I took care of him and his wife. And then right after that, we got sent to CGSC, and we were in the same study group together. So we got to know each other pretty well. We went pheasant hunting out there and did a lot of social things together. One of the things that still stands out to this day about uh, my time at West Point is the quality of people that we met. It was a wonderful post, Doug, for a family because they've got all these young majors as instructors and they're full of energy and they're, they all like to get involved in everything. And so there's a million activities for the kids. And, and so my kids got to do everything there. And we lived on post, so we had plenty of time to, to do things as a family as opposed to some follow-on assignment. So one of the interesting things I saw from your bio was that in 89 to 91, you were the division surgeon for the 82nd Airborne Division. And that was when they did the combat jump into Panama as part of Operation Just Cause. And we've interviewed a couple of folks on the show who were part of that as well. But what was your job and, and what were you thinking at that time? Well, it's funny because I was sitting at my desk one Friday night at West Point and I, you know, I was just finishing charts. And I got this call and, and I picked up the phone and it was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Poor, who was the 82nd Division Surgeon at the time and said, I want you to take my place as Division Surgeon. And this was just out of the blue. And I said, well, why'd you pick me? He says, well, you're West Pointer, you're prior infantry. That means something to these guys down here. You're already airborne. And he says, I know you're going to CGSC. So when you come out, I want you to come down there. Okay, that, that sounds like a good deal to me. I, I like being with soldiers. And so that's how that job came about. I didn't politic for it or anything. But I got there and I had a really good boss, Major General Johnson. And he was very uh, supportive of the medical folks. We had a good reputation. And I got there in the summer. And then, as you know, Just Cause happened about three days, four days before Christmas. And so we knew it was coming. And we did a lot of mission rehearsal. But the, the security was so tight that I couldn't get information about what the op plan was to create my medical support plan. And it was frustrating. The G3 at division at the time went on later to be a four-star. I won't mention his name, but I mean, he was just doing his job trying to keep OPSEC. So I ended up going over to JSOC at Fort Bragg and Tony Baskin was the JSOC surgeon. And I said, hey, Tony, you got to help me out. I got to know what's going on down there so I can make some plans for supporting our, our soldiers. And he let me in and gave me you know, a broad brush outline so I could do some decent plans. And then 
for the actual operation, it was December and we had this freak storm and we went over to Green Ramp before the jump and I was going to be with the division assault CP as division surgeon. And so the weather came in and it was so cold and so icy that instead of every the whole division or as much of the division as we were taking, loading up and leaving at one time, it was supposed to be by midnight we were supposed to jump, the planes iced up. So they only had enough de-icing equipment to de-ice like two or three C-141s at that time. And so we went out piecemeal. So instead of the 2,000 paratroopers coming out of the sky at one time, there'd be two or three jump, you know, which was like 300. And then an hour or two later, another 300 would jump. Well, I was on the first planes that jumped for the division, but we jumped into Tereus Takuman. And the thing was, it was so miserable at Green Ramp, Doug. I mean, it was cold. I swear it was 17 degrees. And of course, we were all on the planes and they got us off. We got rigged and then we got back on a plane and we didn't stop shivering until about an hour out of Panama. So you didn't have time to get nervous. You were just trying to stay warm. And then we jumped. And they talk about combat jumps being at 500 feet. It is. It was at 500 feet, and it doesn't take long to hit the ground when you're when you're that low. And basically, you jump out, you count to 4,000, look up, check your shoot, your equipment, and then you hit the ground. Really, it's that quick. And I don't know why they gave us reserve parachutes, but I guess it was just a, a mental thing. But I landed right in this tall, like elephant grass. It was like six feet tall, so. It, it's one of my best landings ever. It was right beside the airstrip. And there wasn't a lot of action going on. The Rangers had landed before us there, Therese Takuman, and pacified most of the resistance. There were still a few tracers going around, but not a lot of action. So once I landed, I got organized, and we started collecting casualties, mostly jump injuries at Therese Takuman. There had been one Ranger fatality, and believe it or not, it was a medic with the Rangers who was killed by the PDF while he was on the airfield taking care of a PDF soldier. It was so ironic. But fortunately, there weren't a lot of friendly casualties other than jump injuries. And so we got those long conveyor trucks that they unload luggage from, the plane, and, and load luggage on. Well, I got one of those, and we went around the airfield, and we put casualties on that, and then we took them back to the baggage control area at the airport. And that's where we set up our, our aid station there. And there weren't a lot of casualties, but guess what? We saw a lot of patients because all of the local Panamanian physicians were Noriega sympathizers. So when they saw that they were being invaded, they all left practice and there was nobody to treat them. So I delivered seven babies in the first 24 hours in the airport because women showed up in labor and what are you going to do? You know, so we, we took care of them and I actually saw Daryl Poor again. He was with special operators and he'd been injured. So we took care of him, but that wasn't bad. And then the next day we air assaulted two different units, battalion size units out to different places for them to attack other objectives. And I was on one convoy to one of those and we got, it was sort of an ambush, but it was people shooting at us from a long ways away and stuff. But that was really, once we got up there, there was some sniper fire, but there really wasn't a whole lot of action. But I tell you what was interesting because we knew we were going to be at Therese de Kuman, and that's on the other side of a mountain range from where we were evacuating all the patients out of country. And because we just had FM radios back then, we had brought an FM retrans piece of equipment with us so that it would boost the signal to get over the mountains to the medevac folks. Well, guess what? The Air Force dumped it in the ocean. They dropped it in the wrong place. So fortunately, our med battalion commander, Fred Gerber, was there too. And he was friends with some of the Rangers. And we got some sat phones from them that we were able to finally reach the, the field and the medevac unit at too. So that's just one of those things that just happens in war. It's just chaos. All the action was over in 48 to 72 hours, Doug. And then we hung around for another couple of weeks after that. So... It was a fun shock and awe is what they called it. And unfortunately, uh, we kind of carried that over to some of our actions after that, as you know, and it wasn't, didn't always right. turn out quite as well as it did or as quick as it did in, in uh, Panama. So you were still with the 82nd Airborne Division when Operation Desert, Desert Storm started. So yeah. what was your role in, in that? Well, I was a division surgeon again. 
And uh, we knew it was coming. So we had a lot of mission rehearsal exercises there. We didn't think it was going to be an airborne operation, but we were going to be on the first plane over there for, for the Army. And I was with the Division Assault CP. And it's funny because we flew commercial over there and they chartered commercial airliners. So it wasn't military aircraft. And and we all loaded on at, at Pope Airfield and we headed out to go to Saudi Arabia and we got over Maine and all of a sudden the airplane filled full of smoke. We said, oh shit, what's going on? You know, and so the pilot didn't know. So he said, there's a fire in the baggage hold. He dumped all of his extra gas that he had over probably some poor potato farmer in, in northern Maine. And we landed in Maine and everybody got off the plane. And what it was was somebody's smoke grenade had fallen off their web gear. And it was just a smoke grenade down in the hold. But after a while, we got back on and we flew over. I think we stopped in Italy on the way over. And then after that, we landed. And so we're getting close to landing in Dharan in Saudi Arabia. And we're, we didn't know what. We had no intel as far what we were going to meet. We didn't know if, if the Iraqis were going to contest the landing or what. So we got camo on and we locked and loaded. We all had our weapons right in this 747. And so we go, we land and they open the doors and we go charging off the civilian airliner. And there's a, there's an Air Force guy on the land directing the plane with t-shirt and a, a fluorescent belt on and everything. We come to find out the Air Force had landed there two or three days before they had a Air transportable hospital, ATH, all set up right there. The, the Iraqis were 300 miles to the north, but there, we were ready for them. And it took us a while to live live down that, charging off the civilian aircraft into uh, the waiting Air Force arms. So we were sent from Dharan north. It was a brand new Saudi air defense artillery base, and they hadn't even set on it. So it was called Champion Maine, is what we renamed it. And so we sat there and basically got ready, got prepared. We did a lot of combat lifesaver training and we practiced a lot of assaults. One thing I found out, Doug, and you would appreciate this, I found out that there's nothing more labor intensive than having doctors that don't have anything to do. So we had three doctors assigned to our 307th Med Battalion, Dave Jakes, Craig Shriver, and Skip Whitman. Dave Jakes was the chief of uh, surgical oncology at Walter Reed. I think at that time, Craig Shriver was chief of general surgery at Walter Reed, and Skip Whitman was chief of orthopedic surgery at Womack. And they're all really high-speed guys, really smart guys. And uh, if they're not busy, they tend to look for work, and that can generate a lot of work. So they were very helpful in giving a lot of OPDs on trauma care and also helping to teach not only our folks in the basics of trauma care, but also the Saudis. We did a lot of work at the Saudi military hospitals as well. One issue that came up back then, the doctrine was during peacetime, a medical service corps officer was in charge of the medical battalions. But during wartime, the division surgeon would become the medical battalion commander as well as being division surgeon. Well, the med battalion commander didn't want anything to do with that. He was a very good officer, very good commander. And uh, it was a major point of contention for most of the divisions that went over there at that time. And I, I thought about it and I said, that's just not right. I don't care what doctrine is. He's a good commander. He's been the commander. He's good enough for peacetime. He's good enough for wartime. And I got my hands full being division surgeon. So I went to the division commander and I said, sir, this is what our doctrine is, but I don't think we ought to do that. This officer should remain the commander and I should be division surgeon. And he was fine with that. I went back and told the battalion commander and he was all upset. You didn't let me talk. I said, hey, listen, we got the right outcome. Don't worry about it. And it, and it, it worked out very well, actually, for everybody, I think, concerned. But that was one of the major things that we had to do. One of the other interesting stories was we didn't know what the chem bio threat was going to be at the time. We didn't know what Saddam was going to do. And our units were spread over eastern Saudi Arabia, and we had about, I think, 17 or 18 battalion aid stations. Well, there was a preventive medicine doc out of Walter Reed named Frank O'Donnell, who was a colonel at the time. He was assigned to me at, at Division Surgeon's office, and we said, we need to set up some kind of surveillance plan so that we know if we've been hit by a bioattack. Because you know, what if some people start coming down with certain symptoms? That may be our first indicator that there's been a bioweapon drop. So 
he and I came up, mostly him, came up with basically this like five or six question questionnaire for each of the battalion aid stations to answer every day. And all we had was very rudimentary communications with them, FM radios, and sometimes a landline. But so it wouldn't be too much of an admin burden, but it worked. And so we were able to tell if anybody, how many people had diarrhea or how many had cold symptoms or how many people had rash. That sort of thing came up with a system that I thought was was pretty innovative, actually, at the time. And fortunately, there weren't any biological or chemical attacks, but it's something you got to think about when you're the first deployer. How are you going to monitor it before all the sophisticated, automated monitoring systems come in? So anyways, we stuck around there until just before New Year's, and then we went way up on Tapline Road. We moved way out west. Uh, we were part of what they called the left hook that was going to basically do a flanking movement. It was us and the French 6th Division, and then the 101st was doing air assaults up there too. So we waited up there a couple weeks while the air war was kicking off. And then the ground war, we went over the berm that night, and it was a miserable night. The wind was howling, and it was raining, and it was sleeting, and it was super cold. But we went over, and you couldn't see in front of you more than maybe, if you're lucky, one vehicle's headlights in front of you, or taillights, rather. It's a wonder we didn't run into more of each other. But basically, the ground war was a 100-hour war. And so uh, we went up with minimal contact. Some of our recon elements had some contact out in front of us. But the whole western flank was pretty quiet compared to the center and then over by Kuwait where the Marines and the 1st first, first Armored Division went. So we went up there, and I was up there. We were probably up there for about 10 days or so. And I was sitting there one day, and all of a sudden this Humvee comes up, and it's these special operations soldiers. And they said, hey, is there any doctors here? I said, yeah, I'm a doc. What do you need? He says, well, there's been uh, some casualties at this civilian village. Could you come down and take a look at them? Right? And went down, and there'd been a cluster bomb dropped near this village. And the kids went out and played, tried to play football with some of the cluster bombs with a predictable result. So there were several casualties. There'd been a couple kids killed, and several were injured. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. I didn't think the local population would be real friendly towards whoever dropped the cluster bombs, which was obviously us. But they were very grateful for our help. And actually, the school teacher there had gone to NYU, and he acted as a translator. And we ended up doing sick call for, for them for the next three or four hours. I put in a few chest tubes. I saw fractures that had been broken you know, for a year that nobody ever set and stuff. So the village turned out very appreciative for all that. But it was the only mass ca- casualty exercise that I saw during all of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So after that, we came back. And shortly after that, we, we redeployed. So fast forward just a little bit. In 1994, you're the DCCS at Fort Bragg during the Green Ramp disaster where a mid-collision of an F-16 and a C-130 at Pope Air Force Base occurred. And the F-16 wound up crashing and hitting a C-141 on the ground and careening into an area where paratroopers were staging. 23 men died that day and over 80 were injured and brought to Womack and other surrounding hospitals. Tell us a little bit about that day from your perspective. So that was an interesting day. I was the acting DCCS Steve Jones, Major General uh, Jones, he was DCS, and he was up with the commander, who was Harold Timbo, up in Washington, D.C. on a TDY. So Bill Egerton, who was the chief of surgery, was the acting commander. So I got a call from the ops center at the hospital. I picked it up, and there was somebody at Green Ramp said, sir, there's been an accident down here, and there's multiple casualties, and they're headed your way. 30 seconds later, the first deuce and a half truck pulled up outside the emergency room, and I went inside to meet it, and it was filled full of burned, screaming soldiers. So 30 seconds warning for that to come. So we did the mass casualty plan. We activated that right away. Unfortunately, we just had an exercise about two weeks before that, so it was fresh in everybody's memory. Plus, I had some great people there. Patty Horho was chief of the ER, later on to be our Surgeon General. And it happened at 3.30, so it was right at change of shifts. So we had basically two shifts of nurses there. Fort Bragg has lots of medical units between the division and JSOC and 44th Med. So everybody came there. Jeff uh, Clark came over and offered anything that the division had. And General Peak was the 44th Medcom commander at the time. And he came over 
and basically made anything available that he could for us to use. Bill Egerton went up to the OR and said, I'm going to organize the OR to be able to handle these up here. You do everything else. So basically, we set up triage right outside the ER and uh, put everybody through the ER that that we could. And we set up different stations throughout the hospital run by different specialties. It was a real challenge for PAD, wrapping their arms around trying to get names for who all the soldiers were when you got this many, because we got them all within 45 minutes, an hour or so. Now, did they all come to you or did some go to other hospitals right away or did they all go to Womack and then spread out? They all went to Womack initially. We triaged a few down to Cape Fear Mm. and then we medevaced, I want to say six or seven up to the burn center at uh, UNC. And unfortunately, uh, none of them survived. It wasn't because of anything they did at the burn center. They were just so badly wounded. The other thing that was fortunate for us was that there was one of the docs from the burn center was at a UNC or Duke on a visit. And so we got in touch with him and we got the burn center mobilized. So they sent a contact team to us. We got there probably early in the evening. So we started making plans to transfer the stable patients to the burn center. Really, it started the next morning and stuff like that. So we actually got a few extra surgeons from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. We mobilized them and came over because, I mean, uh, there was obviously a lot of burn care, but there was a lot of amputations that had to be done too. So the orthopods and general surgeons and anesthesia were really, really busy initially. So later that night, probably around before midnight, I'd want to say 11 or 12, Steve Jones and, and Colonel Timbo came came on board. But it was a pretty busy five or six hours. And I, I think the total numbers, like you said, 23 to 25 were deceased. And then I thought it was 125 casualties or so. But it, it was a significant, some were treated and released. And that's probably where the difference lies. But it was a true mass cow. Everybody just rolled up their sleeves and pitched in. It was high adventure. (laughs) After you do something like that, Doug, most every other crisis you come to, you can handle. It's just a trial by fire and probably a good thing we didn't know it was coming. So after that, you wound up going back to Central America in a different role. You were the commander of Joint Task Force Bravo in Honduras. Tell us a little bit about that assignment. I was a program director for family medicine at the time. And uh, I'd only been in the job about a year, and I really liked it. It's it's the biggest family medicine program in, in the service at that time. I had Phil Volpe on staff. I had Jeff Clark on staff. I had Bill Lane on staff, who ended up being a White House physician and had some great residents. So it was a fun assignment. And then I got this call from Branch saying, hey, how would you like to be the commander down in, in Honduras, at the Medel medical element? And I was, I was TDY at the time at a conference, and General Mike Scotty was at the conference. And I said, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, sure. I said, I got this opportunity to go command, but I love what I'm doing at, at Womack. And, and he listened, and he, after a while, he said, George, my advice is if you ever get the opportunity to command, take it. And so I did. And I, I went back, and I talked to the chairman of family medicine there. And by that time, Kevin Kiley was the uh, DCCS and I talked to him and they both supported me. So I, I went down there and it was a great job. I'd never been to Central America other than dropping in on Panama. And Honduras was like the third poorest country in Central America at the time behind Haiti and Nicaragua. And JTF Bravo was set up by Ollie North back in 1983 to basically as a staging base to help support the insurgency in uh, Nicaragua. And so it was a great mission. Technically, we were there to take care of the Army and Air Force units that were at JTF Bravo, but we also were there to help the Honduran Ministry of Health. So I got to see a lot of the country, and the Hondurans are the nicest people I've ever met, and they were very appreciative of what we did. And we had two docs and one dentist from the Honduran Ministry of Health, who I still keep in touch with, Eduardo Retes, who was the the main doc there. But he was great at telling me who needed what. I mean, when we went out and did things, it had to be kind of low-tech solutions. I remember we went out to La Mosquitia, which is kind of the Gulf section of Honduras. It's right on the Nicaraguan border, but right on the Gulf. And it's very poor area. We went out and Somebody before us had the bright idea that we were going to help them by putting porta potties out there to help them with their sewage treatment plan. And 
we go back to visit them and see how things are going. And, and the chief of, of the tribe, basically that was his office. It was the nicest building in the whole village. So he used the way to store stuff. So, okay, well, we obviously didn't, we missed the mark on, on that uh, thing. But what really did help was what the vets did. They gave vaccinations to all the cattle and the horses. And, and that's a main means of livelihood for many of these Hondurans. I got to see, we did uh, home visits, if you will, up in the mountains in some of these uh, really small villages for Chagas disease, because uh, the sleeping bugs would come out of the thatched roofs and bite some of the, the uh, villagers at night, and some of them developed cardiocitis from that. And so I got, to, I got to see a lot of tropical disease. We also sponsored one of the orphanages downtown and really got to see, I mean, there was a set of twins in one bed, two twins. They were one year old and each weighed eight pounds at a year old. And so it really changes your perspective on a level of care in different parts of the world and, and made me appreciate what we have in the first world as opposed to third world. But um, the funny thing was, <laughs> and of course, we were all on malaria prophylaxis and, and everything. My secretary got dengue fever while I was down there. I came back and I, w- I went back to the residency and I developed this left-sided chest pain. And I said, oh, I've had pneumonia several times. And I said, it must be that. So I pulled one of the residents over and said, hey, I've got this chest pain. I think it's just uh, pleurisy from one of my episodes of pneumonia. Just give me some antibiotics and I'll be fine. And so he did, but he ordered some blood work. Well, I went home, started taking an inbox. I got the call from the lab and there was this lab tech. Said, Sir, says, you know what I'm looking at? I said, no, you got malaria. So that left side chest pain was actually my spleen that was enlarged. And that's what I was feeling. So I tell you that story just because doctor do not treat thyself. It's a truism. So let's fast forward to September 11th, 2001. What are you doing on that day and how did it impact you? I was still branch chief and I was living at Fort Belvoir at that time. And I was actually at an offsite that we'd done down at the engineer center right off uh, Fort Belvoir. And so it was Fort Belvoir is and the engineer center is right on the Potomac. And so we felt and heard a boom and felt the concussion wave come down the Potomac, if you can believe it. And that's what is it, like eight miles south of the Pentagon, something like that. So that's where I was. And then somebody had a radio on and said, hey, there's been there's we we'd heard before that, I guess, that there'd been an attack on the Twin Towers. And then when we heard the boom, we said, oh, shit, something must have happened in D.C. So I went back to Herscom, which was in Alexandria. It was the Hoffman building at the time. And it said, hey, I need to get on over to the Pentagon. I don't know if they need docs or not, but that's where I need to go. And they said, fine. But as I got over there, they said, no, we don't need any, any more docs. Everybody was a lot of people killed, but there weren't that many people injured. As you know, Patty Horro was was over there. She was uh, chief nurse at the uh, clinic, the Pentagon clinic, and she had helped organize the triage point in the center of the Pentagon at the time. So I didn't end up doing much of anything that that day. I went over by the Pentagon, but I wasn't of any use. And so after that, I went up to uh, Walter Reed, but they'd farmed a lot of the patients out to several of the other civilian hospitals around there too. So. They were spread all over the place, and and there weren't enough docs, quite honestly. So that's where I was, you know, just at Fort Belvoir. Um, so so that that obviously tripped the domino that that started OEF OIF. Tell us a little bit about once we got past two thousand and one, and we're two thousand two, two thousand three. What are you doing then? Yeah, so I just finished at Perscom, and I got promoted general in I think it was May of two thousand two. And General Peake, who was a Surgeon General at the time, said, George, I want you to be the Assistant Surgeon General for Force Projection. So that was over in the Pentagon. So I went over to the Pentagon, and I hated that job done. And it's because the Pentagon has a whole different language, and they have so many different processes. I didn't know anybody over there, so I didn't know how to get things done. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know the language. And so I was over there for about four months, five months. I was just starting to get a handle on it. And uh, General Pete, God bless him, he was, he was as tolerant as he, he could be, I guess, with me. But then the plans for OIF started to coalesce and get more definite. And he called me in and, and said, George, we're going to send the third MedCom, which is a reserve 
Medical Command out of Fort McPherson, Georgia, over there to be command and control for all of the medical elements. And we want, I want you to command that. And I said, great, it gets me out of the Pentagon, I'll do it. And so that was really interesting because there's normally a two-star commander, and there was a two-star commander, 3rd Medcon, but he was based out of Florida. And between him and General Peak, they decided that I was the one that ought to take the command forward. So I inherited uh, a command which was mostly reservist, and I'd never really worked with, with the reserves that much. And they'd never really deployed together before. And their chief of staff was an active duty medical service corps colonel named Bert Kincaid. And Bert is a crusty old medical service corps operator. He's a 70 hotel. And he knew his business. And I could trust him and we could relate because he'd spent a lot of time in the 82nd and in line units. And so we only had about, I want to say, four to six weeks, Doug, to try to get the team ready uh, for the deployment. And we got a couple draft picks, but not too many. We basically deployed. And, and we got over there pretty early. I want to say we deployed in August, maybe early September. And we were building up. You know, everybody flew into Kuwait City. And we had a base right there outside of Kuwait City. And it was really a goat rope, to tell you the truth. I was dual-hatted as the C-Flick surgeon and as the third MedCom commander. So I, I, initially, both units were in the same place, but eventually... And just for those who you may not understand C-Flick, that's the Coalition Forces Land Component Command Surgeon. Right. Right? Right. Okay. And so so I was dual-hatted there for the whole time, which was good in that I didn't have to go through another layer of command, but it was bad uh, in that I had two full-time jobs. But one of the saving graces was that most of the C-Flick chain of command I knew. The, I didn't know the commander. His name was Dave McKiernan, who later on went to be four-star in command of forces in Afghanistan. But he was very supportive, very supportive of medics. But the deputy commander, the G2, G3, G4, and chief engineer were all my war college classmates. And I knew them all, and we were good friends. And that really helped get a lot of things done that I don't think we could have got done as medics. But this assignment turned out to be, I thought, the culmination of my career, even, even after that, because everything I learned in the Army, I had to use in that assignment up to that point. It was hard because there were forces flowing into Kuwait, and there was a good medical plan to bring all the medical forces in, but that got scrapped. I don't know if you remember, but the Secretary of Defense decided to change the flow of materials into the theater. So instead of a lot of the CSS assets, like combat service support assets that were supposed to come in, he, he moved to combat and combat uh, support units in because his plan was to start early and start with more combat forces, hopefully get, to catch Saddam off balance and make it a shorter war. And you can't fault him, and certainly as SecDef, you have the authority to do that. But as a result, instead of two Medlog battalions, we had one Medlog company. Instead of six weeks' worth of medical supplies of Class 8, we basically had what the hospitals brought. And so we didn't have the infrastructure. I mean, he did the same thing to Class 9, the repair parts, too. So it wasn't just us. It was all the, all the CSS that were scrambling. But and I, I quickly found out that I needed some more help, and I called up General Peak, and he sent me his G4 off of certain generals, thank God for him, and several others, you know, that we brought from the active duty side to supplement our, our staff. And like I said, it's game time, and so you don't have a long time to evaluate your staff, and you kind of have to make some pretty, pretty tough decisions about who's going to hold their weight and who isn't and who you need to replace. So that was a big part of it because you've got to have a good team to do a job like this. And it was, it was pretty intense. A big part of what we did too, is we were part of a coalition. And so not only did I have to work with the Air Force and the Navy with their assets and figure out who could do what, but I worked with the British, I worked with the Spanish, I worked with the Bahrainis, I worked with obviously the Saudis and uh, the Kuwaitis to figure out who would take what type of patients or what kind of support that they could do. And the political aspect of it, Doug, is you have to make it a win-win for everybody. You know, so when the Spanish, I asked the Spanish to set up a clinic 
had to make sure that they were seeing patients and that the media got out there and saw how they were contributing and that word got back to Spain. Same thing with all the all the other coalitions members. We spent a lot of time with the Kuwaitis in their military hospitals. We actually saw some patients there, treated theirs until we got some of ours up and running. One of the big problems was what to do with the POWs because the Iraqis were in disarray. So their medical system, both military and civil, fell apart. So we have an obligation under the Geneva Convention to take care of POWs. And nobody in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia wanted to take POWs because of how the Iraqis treated them during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So I had to find other places for them. So we took care of some, but I talked the, I can't remember if it was the Comfort or the Mercy, but it was the hospital ship that was floating around the Gulf to take many of them. And they didn't want to do it. Nobody wants to take care of POWs because it's it's a lot more security and ad, admin uh, stuff. But but they did and uh, for a while. And so that's something that we probably hadn't planned on. But what happened with the collapse of the entire system, I mean, there was no Ministry of Health. So we take care of civilians or we take care of POWs, but what do you do with them after you stabilize them? Our hospitals had to keep up with maneuver troops, whether it was the 212th NASH or the 86 CASH, they had to keep up with maneuver forces. So we had to do some really quick work and some fast talking to hand them off to someone, whether it be other nations or whether it be we helped the Ministry of Health put together a hospital to, to stabilize some of these. But it led to some really tough ethical quandaries for some of our hospital commanders, because normally we have the luxury of taking care of patients until they're super stable and we got a good handoff. We know they're going to get good care. In this case, it was tough, but that was one of the big things we do. I mean, the criminal element took over right away after Saddam's government fell. And so in Basra, which was just up the coast from us in Kuwait City in, in Iraq, the criminal element came in and, and they literally tipped patients out of beds, Iraqi patients out of Iraqi hospital beds to take the beds off and sell them. They got a crane and took the generator out of the hospital to sell it on the black market. I mean, that's how quickly the criminal element took over. So there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure to deal with. One other point I, I just want to make, one of the casualties of changing the flow of materials in to the country was medevac aircraft. During Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we had 200 medevac helicopters available to do it. We only went up 100 miles into Iraq, so our lines of evacuation went real long. This time, we had 60 aircraft. That was it. And we were going to go all the way to Baghdad, if not farther. So lines of evacuation were four or five times bigger or longer. And so that was a challenge. And one of the medevac companies that got cut was supposed to go to the Marines, the 1st Mardiv, 1st Marine Division. But it got cut. It wasn't their fault, but they had one of the main efforts. They were going up the east side of the Euphrates, and they were going to see heavy action. So it was my decision to take some risk. We carved out another medevac company out to support them out of and took some risk in the rear areas to move patients around there by land or hopefully more stable patients who can move by land or other helicopters. But the Marine doctrine is Kazadak. They don't have dedicated medevac aircraft, nor does the Navy. And so that just, it just doesn't work in a fast-moving tactical environment. So we had to help out our brothers in arms. I'm glad we did. And to this day, General Conway, who was the first Mardiv commander, has always said he'd, he'd appreciate what we did. But it's the right thing to do. That's not the time for service parole codes. So it seems like your career so far has set you up perfectly for a next assignment where you take lessons learned and try to apply them to doctrine and, and the school, because you became the commander of the AMED Center in School, which is now the Medical Center of Excellence. What were your priorities taken over that unit? And what did you want to instill in Army medicine to do better or learn some of the lessons that you had learned? I, I felt the same way as, as you just said. I thought, hey, I know what right looks like now. And fortunately, by that time, it was 2004 to 2006, we'd been at war for a couple of years. And so there was a sense of urgency. We were still having casualties. We still had a lot of people over there, both medical people and obviously tactical people. 
So one of the big things that I knew, Doug, is I knew what our hospital should look like. I'd been forced to tear the 86 cash apart and make it capable of split-based operations. It needed to be surgical heavy. We did not need all the holding capacity that we had. So when I got down to AMED Center School, I said, okay, this is what, how we need to change our hospitals for the future. And I gave them the approved solution. Okay, now I, I'm not proud to tell you that it took them seven years to come up with a new field hospital <laughs> concept that we have now, but it looks like what I thought we should have coming out of that war. The other things, we got the improved first aid kit approved while I was down there with increased emphasis on the CAT or the combat application tourniquet. That saved lives, it really did. And we'd always been trained since you and I were were baby docs not to use tourniquet just as a means of last resort because you could lose a limb. To my knowledge, there was never a case of a limb being lost because of a tourniquet that wasn't gonna be lost anyway. And it saved so many lives. So we were able to bring the CAT and the IFAC into general practice. The other big thing is the Tactical Combat Medical Care course, which I think was basically kind of advanced trauma course for teams and for medics of going over there and for surgeons too, to get them a little bit more up to date. And I thought that saved lives. So we were able to get that up and running. And I started the redesign of the forward surgical teams. I said, they're good, but guess what? They're so good that all the BCT or brigade commanders want one of their own, and we don't have enough of those. So maybe we need one that's a little bit lighter, but capable, uh, a little bit heavier, but capable of split-based operations so we can split it up. So that was the genesis of what we now have is the FRST, the forward resuscitative surgical team, which I think is a good thing because regardless of how our doctrine says we use them, the line guys are going to split them up because it's a it's a security blanket for them. So I think we got that right and we started that process. But one of the people that I want to shout out to that was really a shaker mover and made a big impact on the whole system was John Holcomb. John Holcomb was at the ISR, the Institute of Surgical Research at the time. And he came up with the concept, he'd done a lot of work with trauma and special operations. And he came up with the concept of, hey, we don't know what we're doing unless we have the data. So he's the guy that came up with the trauma uh, registry so that we could look at what we were doing with trauma cases in the country, figure out what worked and what didn't work, and then apply that to lessons learned such about changing our uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures on, on trauma care. So John basically, with help from us and from MRMC, set up this trauma care system where we actually sent nurses over to be at our hospitals over there to collect data on our trauma patients and how they did it. And we sent them to Walter Reed so we could see what the outcomes were later on down the line. And we created this huge database that we could mine in many different directions. And the military has a reputation for leading the country in trauma care because of our experience with large numbers of trauma during warfare. But to me, John really moved the bubble on this. We had a chance to talk to John, and we're going to release the episode this weekend. Yeah. Well, John's a pain in the ass to work with, believe me. But, I mean, he is a zealot, and that's what it takes to move the needle. And it was his foresight and his inspiration and his energy that made that happen. And just for the record, the two people that I think had the biggest impact, lots of people in military medicine like to brag about our survivability rate. And, and they should. I mean, it's up around 94 95%. But the two people that had the most to do with that are him and General Peak, because General Peak realized, hey, we're losing the patients that we're losing at the point of injury. So we have to increase the knowledge of that combat medic. So he's the one that doubled the length of 68 whiskey training. He's the one that taught them the basics of self-aid, buddy aid, and, and to use oral pharyngeal airways and to do needle decompression to the chest and put on the tourniquet. So those two guys really. I think more than anybody else in, in the whole system. We got to get General Peak on the show. Well, good luck. He's <laughs> a pretty private person, but he has had a huge impact on military medicine and healthcare. So we have spoken with several guests about the, the Walter Reed, and I'll call it the neglect scandal in 2006 and 2007 regarding the logistical and leadership challenges that were going on at Walter Reed. Now, you were commander of the North Atlantic Regional Medical Command and the commander of Walter Reed during that time. 
in which you were ultimately relieved of command and General Kiley was forced to resign. Can you reflect on your experiences during that time and, and perhaps some lessons learned or something that we don't know that you want to share? Yeah, sure, Doug. Yeah, it, it's uh, kind of funny because when I first got to Walter Reed, we thought we were doing a pretty good job because they used to have, back when my predecessor and his predecessor were there, we'd had up to 900 soldiers in wounded warrior care and med hold, if you will. And we were down, by the time I got there, we were down to about 600 or, or so. So <laughs> to me, that that was progress. And we de- decreased the, the wait times for medical boards and stuff. So we thought we were making progress. I realized that we needed more docs to do medical boards because that was a, a bottleneck in the system. And we'd already trained two or three more, and we had two or three more that were coming. But what really hurt us at Walter Reed was the fact that we were bracked. We were on the BRAC list. And once you get on the BRAC list, a DOD or the Army really doesn't want to put any more resources your way. We knew that we needed more help with the the buildings that were there. Now, the buildings were getting ready to be bracked, and they were getting ready to be turned over to the State Department or whoever. And so our request for more money for uh, the buildings had been turned down. We knew we needed some more help for cadre to supervise the wounded warriors, but that had been turned down by the Army G- G3 because he didn't want to use warfighters to help with patient care. And it wasn't really patient care, it was soldier care, but patient care. So we were forced to use our own medics and other medical technicians for that, but we were grossly understaffed. And one of the other big frustrations, one of the reasons why we had so many wounded warriors there was how cumbersome the physical disability evaluation system, PDS, was. And unfortunately, the medics, we don't control that. That's controlled by the Army G1. And we had not been able to uh, get a whole lot of help in uh, getting that redone or simplifying it for the soldiers. Plus, remember, they also had to go through the DOD system, but they had to go through the VA system. And we hadn't been able to make a whole lot of progress with the VA as far as combining systems or simplifying them to make it easier. So what had happened was I had found out that we had two reporters from the Washington Post that had been in our medical hold brigade for up to six months. And I just found out literally two days before they were going to publish their articles. And they just came to me and said, just out of courtesy, we want to tell you what we saw and what the report's going to say. And I personally thought that was a bit unethical. I, I thought that they should have they should have let people know that they were in the unit. I mean, this is America and there's freedom of speech and the soldiers can say what the soldiers are going to say, but the reporters should have known. And quite honestly, my brigade commander and battalion company commander should have known there's two reporters nosing around for six months. It shouldn't have been that big a shock. But so anyways, that happened. And then I told the Army PAO, and they thought that they would get ahead of the story by doing a briefing to a media pool ahead of time. I think both General Kiley and I uh, spoke at that. But they did not tell the media pool really the nature of, of what or how potentially explosive the articles from Washington Post were going to be. So we told them what we knew. And then it was quarantined because they couldn't file anything until after the Washington Post article went. That was the deal with, with the uh, local reporters. And then the article from the Washington Post came out, and these people, the media pool, thought that they'd been kind of lied to, or we tried to spin the narrative more than we meant to, whereas we didn't really know which way the Washington Post was going to spin it. But then the articles came out. That was the news cycle, and it was terrible news for the Army, for DOD, for the country. Everybody wants to take care of wounded warriors and nobody wants to see them languish. And so then Congress got involved and both General Kiley and I had to testify before Congress. And quite honestly, that wasn't as bad for me as as some. And many people have seen my testimony on C-SPAN. I won't go over that again. But the bottom line was that the articles, even though the headlines were wounded warriors getting terrible care at Walter Reed, that's what wasn't what the articles were about. It really wasn't about medical care. If you talk to the wounded warriors, they were all pretty darn pleased with the medical care. It was just that whole other 
environment that they had to negotiate as far as making it through the process. They didn't probably didn't have enough supervision to help them through it, but it did take a while to get to medical boards. It did take a long time to get the fiscal disability evaluation systems and, and get the boards processed and also to go through the VA. And, and so it was that system that was really letting them down. And it was several different systems, most of which the Army didn't have control over. But I will tell you this, it's a good thing. Those articles happened. I know the headlines are the articles where they showed a, a room with mold on, in the bathroom. And I personally had probably walked through 400 rooms out of the 600 before that and to see that they were up to speed. But I had not been in Building 8 yet. And uh, they found two rooms there. And of course, that was a headline. And you get upset because that does not indicate what the standard is for the other 598 that are there. And the Washington Post doesn't point that out. But I mean, their job is to sell newspapers. But what it did is it created a crisis. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to fix the wrong, wanted to help. The Army, DOD, Congress, the American people, everybody came. And we got more money. We got more people. We created these soldier uh, warrior care units, as you're familiar with. And without that crisis, I don't think we would have gotten the help that we did. And I got relieved. I think I got relieved for the main reason being that DOD was just sick being on the front page of the Washington Post every day and getting their name dragged through the mud. And the normal news cycle is 48 to 72 hours. This went on for two, three weeks. And they said, no, we need to do something significant to show that we're serious. We mean to fix this. And and I got fired and, and that's fine. We, I understand I was I was there and, and it was probably the right thing to do. But without that crisis, I don't think we would have been able to break through and get the VA and DOD to form the, the one physical for a wounded warrior that was getting out and, and the streamline the PDE, PDES and to get more resources. So I'm not bitter about it. The point is, you have to make Walter Reed, who had the reputation of being the the medical center of all of DOD, the, the best place for possible care. I'm, I'm sure the Navy folks would argue that at the time it was Bethesda, the president's hospital. But nevertheless, what do you do to help pick them up? So I, I held a series of town meetings and I invited the Washington Post reporters there and said, hey, listen, you, the staff here is, is great. You guys are providing great care. You will continue to do great care. You care about our wounded warriors. And I need you to to keep that uh, positive attitude. I want you to have confidence in your ability to take care of everybody. We've got some of the best of the best docs and nurses and technicians here and staff, and we need to continue to do. We can't just give up. We can't hang our heads and say, well, we'll try better next time because that's that's not you know, what we're here for. We're here to take care of soldiers every day. So I spent a lot of time doing that, but you just have to realize, yeah, I was responsible. I was the commander. And like I said during testimony, commander is responsible for everything that does or doesn't happen. And yeah, maybe some of the things that we'd asked for previously, I should have taken my boot off and patted on the podium and said, no, we absolutely need to do this. And I didn't do that forcefully enough. And I take that responsibility as, as the commander. So, so that, that brings me to just a, one question. If you could get in a time machine and go to six months before those reporters showed up and make one change, do something different, what would it have been the, the one thing that you might have done? I think it would have been to go visit the vice personally or gone with a certain general and gone to the vice and said, hey, listen, we need, whether it's money, whether it's soldiers, whether it's help with the processes, it's help with the G1, we need your help because we've asked and, and we feel that it's just a headline waiting to happen. I tried to meet every bus of wounded warriors that came to Walter Reed from Andrews Air Force Base Bowling Airfield. I probably didn't meet them all, but I, I met the majority, but I probably didn't get as involved and get situational awareness as quickly as I did because I got there, I think, around the 1st of October, and this all broke in February. So I'd been there about five months, and I probably should have got situational awareness earlier and then had the chutzpah or the situational awareness to get help from the Army staff. So that if I'd had it to do over, if I had 2020 hindsight, I would have had to do that because at some point you just can't accept no as an answer. 
So, so following that, you went on in 2007 to 2009 to be the commanding general of the Medical Research and Materiel Command, also known as MRMC. Tell us a little bit about the priorities of MRMC at that time and maybe one or two accomplishments that happened during your tenure there. So I knew nothing about research. I knew something about logistics. MRMC was Medical Research and Materiel Command. So I knew some logistics from my previous summits, but I knew nothing about research. So I was a little bit apprehensive about that. The way MRMC is set up, there's plenty of smart scientists around that can make you smart about the science of things. And so I spent a lot of time learning. RID does the infectious disease part. They do a lot of the vaccine research. They have the BSL-3 and 4 level labs. There's not that many in the country. So it's almost like working in NASA, the space station. So I learned an awful lot there about the research that we do on those agents that potentially could be used against us in a biologic warfare sense that have no antidotes. And so that gets your attention really quick. And then RARE does a lot of work on infectious disease, and they do a lot of vaccine research as well. And they have two labs that are overseas, one in Kenya and one in Thailand, that do a lot of work on tropical medicines you know, and HIV research. I learned that. Plus, I also learned a lot of interagency stuff because NIH has a lab up there. The National Cancer Association has a lab up there. And Homeland Defense has a lab up there doing various other things. So I spent a lot of time learning the, the interagency piece as well as learning Army acquisition and support logistics part of the Army because our logistics, we purchased a lot of things through them. And I didn't have a whole lot of experience with them. So I had to learn that language and learn who the play players were up there. So I was on a pretty steep learning curve. And I actually took a lot of correspondence courses to get acquisition trained, at least level two, not to level three. So that was kind of fun because at that late in my career, it's kind of fun to learn some new things. One of the secrets I learned was that most of the labs, even though there's a $2 billion budget, which is a pretty big budget for that place, most of the money is already tied to some research program. So it could be a vaccine research. It could be a congressional earmark back when we had such things so that uh, certain research got done in a certain congressman's district or at an academic institution in, in his state, that sort of thing. And so you don't have as much flexibility about where you want to do research and what the research needs are. Now, the, the money comes into what's now DHA, was ASD Health Affairs back then, and it kind of gets divvied up there. So you get involved then on what the priorities for DOD are, and then you you pare that down by service. So obviously vaccine research was big. We did a lot of research on anthrax, which is very timely because while I was up there, we had the anthrax attacks on Washington, D.C. And there were actually a couple of people killed with that. So we had a lot of interest in that. As far as impacts on it, what I had is up to that point, all the labs it was kind of their commands were picked in-house. So it wasn't in the normal CSL or command select list competition that we have for most of the other commands within the AMED and within the Army. And there's good and bad to that. The command that we had to pick from were usually very smart scientists, but they might not be the best leaders because they'd spent their whole time in that lab and didn't know the rest of the Army or hadn't had a lot of leadership training. So I converted several of those commands to CSL. It wasn't a real popular decision at the time, but I said, hey, if you get a good commander in here, there's always smart people around him that can teach him the science or her the science. And I think that's paid off in big dividends. I don't know if you saw the last general officer selection board, but both the commander at RARE and RID got picked up for general officers. That had never happened before. So I think it benefits the organization by having good leaders they're maybe not the technical experts, but you surround them by the technical. And then that's what my 36 years in the Army taught me. A good leader can overcome almost anything. But if you've got an organization that has a lot of talent, but not good leadership, it, it's going to struggle. 
So one of the things that we like to ask all the the guests on on Wardox is, and we know that that you have kids, and we know that one of your sons is a pediatric ophthalmologist currently on active duty. But in 50, 100 years from now, if your future family listens to this podcast for some reason, what is something that you'd want them to hear from you about your career in military medicine? I think I'd like to be known for a lifetime of service. I'm pretty proud of, of my career as a physician and as a soldier. And those people that devote their time to selfless service, whether they're first responders or, you know, I don't care, policemen, firemen, medics, whatever. I, I think that's a noble thing for anybody. So I'd like to be known for that. And and hopefully I, I try to always act in an honorable way. Sometimes you have to make some tough calls, but if you do the right thing, you don't lose sleep over it. I have a strong belief in the Army as a meritocracy. The Army is not perfect. It's like any other big bureaucracy. But I think, by and large, most of the time, they get it right. And people that do good jobs in the Army, they get rewarded. And people that don't do good things don't stay uh, and get asked out. So I, I have a lot of faith in the ethics of the Army and doing the right thing eventually. Yeah, we all have hiccups. It's made up of half a million people. But... I think most of the time they get it right. And and I really appreciate their training in ethics and in leadership, which you don't see in academia and you don't see in this corporate America that I think helps separate us from, from those other entities. And the other thing is I couldn't have done any of this unless I'd married a great woman. I've been married 46 years now to the same woman and she devoted her whole life to our family and to the army. And she was so much support to me. We produced three wonderful kids, both boys in the army. And my daughter's a married and executive with a life insurance company. They all done very well and they're good people. I'm proud of all of them. And they're very, very honorable kids. And it's basically because of my wife, because I was, I was gone a lot. So I got to steal a line from Warren Buffett. Somebody asked him the most important decision he ever made. And he said, I picked the right spouse. And I, I think that was the most important decision I made. And I'd like to like to be known for that. We've been speaking with retired Army Major General, Dr. George Waitman on Wardog's podcast. George, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you, Doug, for this opportunity. And thank you for your service as well. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's Wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.